you have to remember what is the point of being a radiologist, right? Like people forget, it's not about generating reports. It's about helping patients treat every patient like they're your family member. And I promise you, you will have a rewarding career and you will remember what you're in it for. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Samir Shah. Dr. Samir Shah is the Chief Clinical Officer of Teleradiology and Senior Vice President of Radiology at Envision Healthcare. Dr. Shaw completed his residency in radiology at the University of Pennsylvania and went on to complete a fellowship in interventional radiology at Northwestern University. He has spent the last 20 years in practice, the majority of it in executive leadership positions with large teleradiology practices. I'm personally so excited to have Dr. Shaw on the show today. He's just at the intersection of some of the most exciting trends going on in radiology with you know, the explosion in imaging demands, the rapid pace of development in AI, and and the shift to remote reading models. So really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, well, Daniel, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I'm really excited too. I've had a very interesting, varied career, but you've got to be thankful, you know, in, in retrospect that you're placed at the intersection of some cool things that happened in radiology over the last 20 years. So uh, I am very grateful and appreciate being with you here and uh, excited to talk. You know, it's really well said. I don't think we take enough time to appreciate how lucky some of us are that we picked a field that happens to be so exciting. You yeah. know, you look at so yeah. many other fields that you might have thought 20 years ago would have been exciting fields to be in that maybe took, you know, hard 100%. turns. And so uh, busy is it's, good, uh, as I like to say. Yeah, it is so serendipitous. You know, like ever hear the story about uh, Steve Jobs, you know, going to uh, college and taking a calligraphy class. And, you know, by him taking a random calligraphy class, it led to some of the unique fonts that he used in Mac, which led to its prominence and, you know, just a roller coaster. And he said, you know, that was the most important class. He audited the class. And it always struck me as like some of the things that happened to us in life are serendipitous, you know. I love that story. And, you know, it may seem serendipitous, but your your career has been on a rocket ship trajectory. So tell us a little bit about how you maybe in a in a unique way found the field of radiology, but then, you know, yeah. what ultimately led you to choosing a career in teleradiology? It was very interesting. You know, I ended up, medical school is even 20 years ago, 20 plus from 30 years ago, was very track driven, you know? So you go in and you have no clue what you want to do. It's just like college, you know? Some people have these set, oh, I'm going to be a finance guy or I'm going to be a, you know, a doctor or I'm going to be in this uh, field. And things change in college. It's the same thing in medical school. There's no question. I went into medical school pretty dead set on being a pediatrician, then didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, well, my dad is an ear, nose and throat doc. I'll do what he did. And, you know, to get into that residency, et cetera, you start doing research and tracking yourself. And so that's where I ended up. I ended up in Pittsburgh, of all places, to do uh, ear, nose and throat surgery. After I had matched into that, you know, residency, you match into a residency, 
I did a radiology rotation with my two best friends who had already matched into their fields. And we were like, we are going to literally show up after morning conference and leave before lunchtime conference. So we will spend no more than three hours on this rotation. And the rest of the time, we're going <laughs> to blow it off and have fun and go out and uh, party, you know, because we're all done. So, Daniel, the honest truth is that I started going for morning conference at 7 a.m. By the end of the month, I was staying for evening conference at 7 p.m. because I had finally found a rotation that I really love in radiology. Mm. And so, you know, it happens to people. And so, you know, I ended up switching fields completely uh, into radiology. And, you know, just like people in college, you make the mistake of tracking yourself once you're never going to let yourself do make that mistake again. What about that radiology rotation spoke to you? Oh. And one of the reasons I ask is I hear that it's one of the harder rotations to get through to med students because you can't really participate. You can't talk to the patient. You can't, yep. you know, scrub in. You can kind of maybe sit next to the doctor while they right. Right. fiddle around on their computer. And so sometimes it's hard for med students to really find joy in those rotations. Absolutely true. Typically, radiology is not even a mandatory rotation. This was 1997. And but even still, like, uh, you know, so many years later, so many medical school curriculum don't make it, you know, a mandatory rotation. And we all know in radiology that it should be because nothing happens in the hospital without radiology. <laughs> you know, every patient gets imaged. Everybody, they should put a CT scanner at the entrance of the uh, hospital, you know, prior to registration, you should just go right through. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the foundation of medicine. And yet it's so optional. It's so difficult to integrate a student into it. But I'll tell you what I loved about radiology. It was intellectual. It was the truly intellectual field of medicine where, you know, at the time, accountable care was coming up and, you know, a lot of uh, changes around the millennium. And for me, I was like, oh, this harkens back to an old age in medicine where you're like literally detective trying to figure out a diagnosis by looking at the films. And mm. to me, that spoke to me. And to be honest with you, so many years later, it's probably worse now than it ever was because there's so many films, they're so rushed. Radiology is just on a nonstop assembly line that gets faster and faster. And I think that joy of intellectual discovery has become somewhat lost. And yet it's still the most intellectual field in medicine. Uh, it's still the most detective work that you could do. Everything is on the film. All the clues are on the film. It's up to us as radiologists to put them together, you know, and uh, figure out the story, what's happening with the patient. And to me, that will not change, has not changed, if we can combat the challenges that we face, you know, the headwinds, reimbursement, and uh, volume, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff you know about. But that, to me, I still love every minute of radiology. It's still the the most satisfying career I could ever imagine for myself. I love that. So you follow your passion and you, you make a, a, a hard pivot, I which did. is hard to do. And then you'd finish residency. Mm -hmm. And now this must've been what, early 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. 2000s. I finished up a 2003 uh, fellowship in interventional radiology. 
and went to private practice in Pittsburgh again, because during my internship, when I was doing ENT, I met my wife and she's from Pittsburgh. And so I moved back there. Never thought I'd be in Pittsburgh. Been here 20 plus years now. And so I got a job and it was almost 85, 90% IR, you know, with a great group of young IR docs. We were doing great procedures. We were thinking, oh, we should start our own fellowship because it was so good. Heavy, heavy IR. And then boom, the practice, the diagnostic side of the practice went under. And just to give you a time frame, this was after the passage of Deficit Reduction Act. It was right before the uh, Great Recession in 2008 and the financial crash. And it was a time when you know, academic medical centers like UPMC in Pittsburgh were, were going from beyond a very local, a good academic medical center to a giant behemoth, right? So UPMC is the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania. Wow. And that is unique for two reasons. Because first of all, Pittsburgh is the smaller city. It's the second biggest city, not the biggest. Philadelphia is bigger than Pittsburgh. And yet UPMC is the largest employer. And then in mo many states, Walmart is the largest employer. And yet in a, a you know somewhat Appalachian portion of the state, Walmart is not the largest employer. It's UPMC. To just give you a size mm -hmm. and scale of how UPMC grew. So our private practice went under. And honestly, I didn't have a plan. I had just built a house. Uh, my wife was pregnant with my second kid. And uh, my father-in-law was passing away in the ICU, and I just knew I couldn't move. And so I told my sob story to my best friend from residency, who what he did after residency was he got on a plane and flew to Australia. And that was like incomprehensible to me. Like, what yeah. are you doing in Australia? And it turned out he had joined the largest practice in the United States at that point, which was actually outside the U.S. in Australia, Nighthawk radiology and this new thing called teleradiology, which I didn't even understand what it was. He was explaining, you know, he had listened to my story and he said, why don't you join Nighthawk? And I was like, I don't think you understand. I can't do procedures from Australia. You know, it was just, uh, <laughs> we were just like talking past each other. And he's like, hold on, I'm telling you to join Nighthawk and stay right from your house and read films from your home. And it just blew me away. And I was like, okay, I guess I can do that. That'll keep me in Pittsburgh. I didn't want to join, you know, any of the practices in Pittsburgh. So I was like, well, I guess this kind of makes sense. And so I spoke to Paul Berger, the president and founder of Nighthawk. And he was such a charismatic, uh, amazing radiologist-centered individual that I, I signed on the dot. I signed on the dot. As an IR guy, I just signed on the dot. I started doing, uh, you know, IR on the side, halftime, and I started reading films for Nighthawk. And I happened to be one of the first U.S.-based docs for Nighthawk. And then the financial crash happened, and over 100 docs went from Zurich, Singapore, India, China, Israel, and Australia back to the U.S. And the other mm -hmm. thing that happened was that instead of prelim reads that we were able to do from abroad and able to take advantage of the time zone difference, right? So it's, you know, 3 a.m. in the U.S. and an ER doc needs a CT red. Well, it's 3 p.m. in Australia. The rat is wide awake, you know? 
And so that paradigm all switched because all those radiologists had to come back to the US to do finals because Nighthawk was like, this is the future finals and we can't do it from abroad. And mm -hmm. that's how things started to change. Well, they needed a leader who was based in the US. So I ended up going into leadership at that point. That's where my career transitioned more towards administrative work. And uh, I became medical director of Nighthawk in 2010. I was elected by the practice. And then by 2011, we had gone bankrupt. Uh, I had finished my business degree and uh, it didn't come in helpful at that point in my career. We were acquired by VRAT, uh, Virtual Radiology. At that point, you know, everybody's heard of VRAT, the largest teleradiology group. I can pause there and keep going or I can, you know. Yeah, let's take a beat for a second because I'm, I'm just so curious. What year was your first teleradiology job when you started working? 2008. There? 2008. 2008. Yeah. What were the internet speeds like? Uh, the internet speeds were slow. First of all, everybody needed a backup connection. So I had a DSL connection and a uh, cable internet connection. There was no fiber connections. There were no satellite links. You know, connection was everything. There were no cell phone connections, right? Yeah. So it was a huge issue, you know, always uh, back then. So um... it just got diminished and you know secondary connections are no longer needed oh yeah i remember the big thing was you needed not only a connection you could not have the same connection for the rest of your house you know <laughs> so you'd uh, have two separate connections now just to tell you how much th things have changed you can have a husband and wife radiologist team they both work from home and then they mesh network it to uh you know the whole house with people streaming and, and doing all that stuff, no issue. Absolutely so no issue. broadband was early. And then you also had, um, what was it like getting clients engaged, getting images sent from these hospitals? Because they must have also looked at you like you had two heads when you're going and oh. selling your teleradiology services. Right. And, 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 We're going to read them from Australia in right. 2008. And think about it. <laughs> this was like almost a decade after the advent of teleradiology. And it yeah. was still considered like you had two heads growing out of your body. So odd, so different to do this. The best thing that we could tell the clients is because what happened right around that inflection point around 2010 or so, security became more and more of an issue, cybersecurity, hacks, et cetera. So reading the films abroad was actually a harder pill to swallow for the hospital CEO in Kansas to tell his community, et cetera, that he was shipping films to Australia. So it was much better that we were US-based after the financial crash. And, you know, prelims still exist even to this day. Yeah. But, you know, I think that because hospitals depend on teleradiology so much that it's well known that like, you know, what's you the, need, yeah. What's the current state of play with teleradiology legislation? Why do you think it is that you know, yeah. US-based radiologists can't final sign in Australia. You know, when CMS came out with that kind of mandate, it has stuck. It stuck through COVID when many things fell to the side. Really, teleradiology has kind of stayed in the same place when you consider legislation. So people ask me, oh, because of COVID, can I get licenses easier? Eh, not really. No. Uh, yeah. We have the interstate compact now that helps. But really, it hasn't made a huge dent in things. Oh, well, what about credentialing? Is it easier now because of the pandemic to help in emergencies and get credentials faster? No, 
those things really helped ICU docs and emergency room docs, but they did not touch radiology. It's still an incredible burden. I would actually argue that it's harder now to get RADS credentialed than it ever was. And the process to get credentialed is something called primary source verification, okay? So that means that every place you work has to verify that you really work there, okay? And for a teleradiologist, that actually has grown over time, right? So we have hundreds of hospitals that have to verify that we were credentialed. And so honestly, the process has gotten worse, not better. I have seen it worsen from even the medical legal standpoint, uh, meaning that if a radiologist has a malpractice settlement in one state, now it dominoes to all their state licenses. Hmm. And we literally call this a domino effect. And you may be totally fine in the state that you had a malpractice settlement. And, you know, as you know, malpractice is not related necessarily to quality. It's just it's just some sort of uh, thing that, that has to happen for radiologists. So you get a malpractice settlement in one state, you know, because of some bad outcome that happened to a patient. Well, because you hold a license in Colorado, Colorado may say, oh, we're going to do a, an action against you. You know, we're going to do a disciplinary letter. And then because Denver, Colorado has done that, now California wants to investigate. And then Arizona wants to investigate. And then New Jersey wants to investigate. And so you become caught. So honestly, nothing has changed. Nothing has gotten better in the Except the internet's a little faster. The internet's uh, faster. And all the images are digital. It's more accessible. It's easier to do. But the process of credentialing has not gotten better. So bring us up to present day. You're so, working at Envision, but tell us a little bit about like what's your current practice like? Are you doing full administrative work, mix of clinical and administrative, and kind you know, of what, what are you responsible for? Well, so it's my first year here at Envision, and really it was administrative heavy. We actually are a conglomeration of multiple Telerad groups. Envision had acquired Night Shift and Imaging on Call and Radisphere and Rays and Imaging Advantage and Pediatric Radiology Alliance, and all those disparate Telerad groups, in addition to the originator group, which was shared in Teleradiology, all had to be integrated. And so this first year, we've worked on compensation plan and making sure our RADs are paid well compared to the market and everything is uniform. We worked on technology, making sure everybody's reading on the same platform and the platform is optimized. So with those two things in place, the future will be headed towards growth, growth, growth. We are really, really doing well. When I came on board, turnaround times might have been in the hours. And now we are incredibly well positioned. We are, you know, doing sub 30 minute turnaround times for all our clients, which is probably unique in the teleradiology world. And so uh, we are going to be on a growth trajectory. And part of that now I will be less administrative and and be clinically reading more, which is great because I told you from the beginning, I love reading. That's why I got into this thing. So the first year is uh, coming to a a close and I think it's been quite successful. Awesome. So you mentioned you're excited about growth, growth, growth. I have a similar mindset, so I can relate to that. But when (laughs) you talk about Envision's vision, pardon the alliteration there, repetition, (laughs) What is the vision? You know, yeah. growth how? What what are you looking to achieve over the next five years? Well, first of all, 
when I came in, you know, since we were talking about my background and history and this and that, a lot of what determined my pathway in choosing a practice or choosing this or that was technology related. You know, PAX was new when I came out. I literally call it talk technology because that was the first dictation system. There was no M modal. There was no power scribe back then. Now voice recognition is basically 95% established as the way to do things. Those were big new developments in radiology at my time. And we are now sitting at another crossroads now that I'm like 50 years old and in the you know mid of my career, it's now AI. And those practices that are getting more and more familiar with AI are going to be the leading practices. So that's our next step at Envision is to become the AI-enabled practice. And that's much harder than it sounds because everybody knows there's AI vendors out there, there's AI practices, et cetera. But how do you integrate it into your own workflow? How do you make sure that you're getting real ROI from, from these algorithms? And quite honestly, for years, I've tried multiple products. Sometimes AI would slow you down as a radiologist. And you know, with volumes out there like they are, we can't afford to be slowed down by 10 seconds. If you're going to be slowed yeah. down, the radiologist is going to reject that AI and say, I'll do it on my own because I can do it faster and better. So that's so, my next goal uh, is uh, create an AI-enabled practice to make everything better. An AI-enabled practice. So let's talk about within the AI space, what are applications that you guys are using today? And you can name yeah. names or, or be vague, but just sort of what problems are you actually solving today in clinical practice? And oh, as you kind question. of think about more long-term, what are the ones that you're like, yeah, no, we haven't figured this thing out yet, but this is where our time and attention is. Yeah, I can be specific and non-specific with you. So I'll tell you specifically that we first used a product that would help us generate reports in a more structured mm -hmm. fashion. And it's actually not AI AI, but it does fall into a field called natural language processing. And it falls into a process of AI that is machine learning dependent that is based on computers understanding our language, our real language, you know? So a radiologist may say things many different ways. They may say there's an aneurysm, or they may say there's aneurysmal dilatation of the aorta, or they may say a ruptured aneurysm, right? Like different ways of saying things, right? This figures it out and understands human language and how we do things. The extreme form of that is what you see right now is like all these chatbots and ChatGPT and, you know, all these kinds of large learning models that are coming to play. And I'm telling you, that is almost as important as the more typically understood form of AI, which Envision is also using for its RADs, which is computer vision, you know, or interpretive AI, where we actually look at structures and a computer can say, this is normal, this is abnormal. And this is life-threatening and you need to recognize it or this is normal. That is a, a totally separate type of AI. But both of those things are going to be very, very important in radiology. What are we looking at in the future? And I'll be very honest with you, AI is going to be critical for PAX companies because it's going to help workflow. How do you assign the right case to the right radiologist at the right time? That's been the question for the last 20 years. And really only AI can do it. And I'll tell you why. Because when you have a hospital that sends a maybe a cardiac CTA 
at 2 a.m. on a random Tuesday, how do you know that you have the right coverage at that hospital by the person who is on and ready and able to accept that study? Because not all radiologists read cardiac, not all radiologists are going to be credentialed at all hospitals, and not all radiologists are going to be working at 2 a.m. with a license with credentials at that hospital. It is way more complicated than people think. It goes beyond Excel spreadsheets. It goes beyond regular QGenda or scheduling modules. Simple, it goes... simple if-then statements. Shots fired exactly. at QGenda. We, we're big fans of QGenda on the pod. A bunch of our employees came from QGenda, but but you're you're 100% right. I think the yeah. assignment capability, especially for a group like yours, you know, to go from a hundred radiologists to a thousand radiologists and to go from one That's state right. of practice to 50 state of practices makes it a 10,000, you know, a hundred times order complexity problem to you solve that you just cannot it. be solved. You the, know, by best, uh, the best analogy that I tell people that it's not an X and Y axis, you know, imagine yep. it's a at a Z and at a, uh, you know, another axis, it's a four point, it's like a tesseract, not a square and not a cube. It's literally four dimensional chess that you have to play. Coming back to what you said earlier around, hey, you know, we want to have 30 minute turn times. Hard for any practice have 30 minute turn times right now. You know, we're hearing of weeks turn times, not in the ED, but in the, you know, outpatient setting. When, no question you know, about that was it. unacceptable, you know, a year or two ago. So it's hard to do. And then why is envisioned well-placed well as you get scale with radiologists, but then you also have the AI superpower that can optimize to say, if I send it to this doctor versus this doctor, you're going to see a three minute improvement, 100%. you know, ac across all cases in the queue, right? Because if I, if I load this doctor up with this study, then this other study on the list down the line is actually going to get, you know, mucked oh, yeah. up. So and, and before AI and before workflow, you know, thoughts about this, like you said, if then this, statements we were just struggling right like we were like why are we doing so badly why are why can't we optimize this you know what you would have is you would have the neuroradiologist reading in a musculoskeletal knee ct because that's what was on his or her list and then you'd have the msk radiologist reading the neuro study and literally this has happened to me over and over and i'm like like you said if we just had the right person reading it, you would have a three minute turnaround time instead of a 30 minute turnaround time on that case yeah. because you have the right person. So that's yeah. where we have to go. Okay. We talked a little bit about report generation. Sounds like you guys are using some tools there already on the computer vision side. Do you have any computer vision tools that you're currently utilizing? We do. We do. You know, I'll stay away from name brands, but we have- Yeah, no, but just like what, what kind of problems are, are you using? Oh, yeah. You know, um, what percent of your studies are running through computer vision? Today? Yeah, it's a great question. It's not a huge percentage because it's CT focused right now. Okay. And it's the typical problems that uh, AI companies have solved. Intracranial hemorrhage, pulmonary embolus, fractures. You know, those are the uh, typical ones we're going against. I think that these were very good problems for AI companies to solve because they're critical and they're yeah. life-threatening in many ways. And they happen to be important for radiologists to solve. So no question about it. I think that they are the most ubiquitous algorithms out there from every company, because those are the problems that can have the biggest bang for buck. 
What we're going to be doing is we're going to be using more and more plain film generated algorithms. And that's really where I see that rads are going to be like, thank you for sending me this. Because I, as a radiologist, can find a head bleed. But if I can make my life easier by having the tubes and lines and everything else in a plain film put into my report for me, boy, that really helps me because plain films are a large percentage of our workflow. Although they tend to be quote unquote faster and easier, they still take a significant amount of time and they reimburse the lowest. And so- Well, it's, a, know, hard, it's a hard business model problem. Exactly. For the it's a hard business model to solve. You already lose $5 per x-ray. You uh, got you want to pay another $2 <laughs> for the x-ray algorithm? It's As hard. you said, there's no money left to pay for it in that algorithm unless it's darn good. It, it can't be one algorithm. You can't just be, oh, we're going to help you find pneumothoraces on the chest x-ray. You know what? When I look at a chest x-ray and I may look at it for 30 seconds, I'm probably going through minimum 50 to 100 different algorithms in a few seconds. Is there an effusion? Are the vessels too big? Is the heart too big? What line is that? What tube is that? Let, let me look at for rib fractures. All of this is going on in the human brain. And AI is super smart, but it's also super dumb because it only knows one thing, an algorithm. I'll give you an example. When we have an AI algorithm and it says negative, quote unquote, it's saying negative for one pathologic entity. There could be a huge tumor with a million other things going on in the brain. And it's almost laughable to us that we see the word negative. We had to train the AI companies to not say negative. We had to train them to say no evidence of bleed. Because if you say yeah. negative and you've got this huge tumor there, the radiologists are going to laugh at how stupid, quote unquote, AI is, right? <laughs> well, there are some companies that have taken a more end-to-end -end approach. You know, I know a few that claim to say, you know, they'll look at 100 pathologies on one right. scan yep. and report against all 100. Are those sure. starting to make progress in the areas that you're talking about? We, we, we've heard about it, 100 plus algorithms for, you know, one chest x-ray. And that's the right way to think about things. The two leaps that you have to make from there is one, you got to pass the FDA. The FDA is going to have one FDA approved algorithm right now, which is pneumothorax for plain film. Uh, guess what? You got to get a lot so more. So just one, one pathology. That's it's it. One pathology. You got to get all yeah, those things through the incredibly tough process. I of the see FDA. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, and then so two, one pathology on a brain CT is helpful because you're saving lives. Exactly. Uh, but not for a chest pathology on a chest x-ray is not helpful because the person needs to look at 100 and you're not saving lives because you can look at the chest x-ray super fast. You hit yeah. it. You hit it on the head. That's where it is. And that's why so you also difficult. need a new FDA regulatory process to figure out. You, can, you can't be going pathology by pathology. You on, cannot be I mean, going How many pathology pathologies could you actually diagnose on a chest x-ray? Probably thousands if you wanted to get cute Probably thousands if you really want to go yeah. there. And that's sometimes why AI was kind of poo-pooed that like nobody's replacing radiologists unless you can have a super algorithm that can think as fast as we do that can identify a thousand different things within a second. You know, the complexity of the human brain is so, so, so difficult for us to even grasp how we do these things yeah. so quickly. 
And um, you're you're one hundred percent correct. Is that's why it's going to take a long time. A for multiple algorithms, but the other part of it is we don't just identify these things. We put them into a report, right? So that's the other thing the algorithm has to do. It has to not only identify the pathology, put it in our report, and then we actually save some time. Then you are yeah. generating some money for the radiologist to actually pay for these algorithms. And it's funny too. I, I always joke that like, even if an AI could do all of it that you just described, the referring physician wants to speak to you to hear your opinion. Now, the way they speak to you is via report. But like, you know, when you call Delta and, you know, they're United right. or wherever you fly out of Pittsburgh and they make yes. you talk to the AI before you can talk to a human. And you're like, no, I, I have a very specific question here. I need to speak to someone about. Um, 100%. That's what all companies don't fail to realize and all communication in healthcare fails to realize. We are in a hard time in healthcare, Right. But when do I feel like a doctor, Daniel? That's what I went into radiology for. It harkens back yeah. to our conversation. The radiologist is the doctor's doctor and we solve intellectual problems, right? So when a doctor is talking to me about a patient they're having trouble with, hey, this is a 39 year old gentleman, he's intubated. I don't know what's going on with the lungs. You said you know, this in your report, what does that mean? What are you thinking? And they give me clinical context and boom, within a four minute phone call, we've solved something, right? Yeah. That's where we have to get to communication. We are great at making reports on studies, but I'll be honest with you. I want to go back to where we were 20 years ago, before PACS, before voice recognition, before AI, when a doc would come into the reading room and we would have an interaction and he or she would say, you help me radiologist. And I would turn around and say, that was a great case, uh, pulmonologist. Thanks for letting me know about this. That was the beauty of radiology. And that's where we have to go back to. Switching gears a bit. I think that you paint a really helpful vision of, of where AI is going, but also where we are today. So where we are today, you know, technology has not solved all of our problems. We have no. massive imaging demand supply imbalances. I know recruiting is a big part of your role. You mentioned growth, growth, growth. Well, that relies on your ability to you know, recruit physicians into the practice. Is it as hard to recruit a radiologist in May of, you know, we're sitting here May 22nd, 2023, as it yeah. was in May of 2022? Oh my gosh. It's so much harder. So much harder. So, so much harder in just the last year. So much harder in the last year. I've never seen it like this. And, you know, I've, I've been in practice for a long time and typically We've gone through roller coaster cycles of when, you know, there were tons of jobs and no applicants, you know, because they're all working. And we've gone through phases where there's no jobs. There's a tight crunch and, and applicants are like, please give me a job. And so, yeah. you know, in this portion, we are in the tightest crunch I've ever seen. That being said, one good thing about the change in radiologists is that many years ago, people had a lot of inertia meaning that they didn't want to change practices. Today, I think not only young grads, but mid-career folks and presidents of groups and heads of quality of groups and you know prominent radiologists are saying, I can switch practices. I can learn a new PAC system fairly quickly. I can move myself out of this location. When I went into practice, Daniel, it was like, you're going to be part of this community for 30 years. Yeah. That's it. You join a practice, well, you stay you know, there. 
your comment is backed up by the data. One in four radiologists left their job, I think, in the last 24 months. No um, doubt. You know, the highest it's ever been. Highest. Part of that is because you shift from the private practice, everyone's an owner model to an employee model. Yes. Or maybe you're a partner, but you're a partner within a hundred person group. So, you know, the benefit oh. of being a partner is a little less tangible. So true. And so now you are going to feel less attached to your community, less attached to your practice. And there's, and and there's more through. options. You know, that like you, more, you have out, more options to your yeah. point. You had no you, options. You had two options. Honestly, yeah. you're going to go to academics. And most of the time that meant, are you going to stay on where you did your training, where you did your fellowship, where you did your residency, or are you going to go to private practice? And usually that meant in the city where you trained. Yeah. Whatever exactly. town, maybe there was one or two or three. Exactly. Groups. And right. by the way, you probably had non-compete with that group. 100%. So switching jobs Correct. meant moving. So yes. How are early career radiologists perceiving teleradiology these days? You know, there's the old adage of, you know, never take a teleradiology job straight out of training. Is that still true? What are, what are you hearing from sort of young radiologists today? You know, they're still hearing that, but they're much, much more willing. This group of young grads are super savvy, first of all. They know what they want. There are certainly those radiologists who say, I want lifestyle balance. And for me, lifestyle balance means I can go hiking when I want to. I can be in this time zone or that time zone. And that means teleradiology to me. And so they are much more understanding of that. They are less absolutely tied into the usual paradigm of, you know, I'm going to work for practice. I'm going to have X number of weeks of vacation, blah, blah, blah. So teleradiology is truly now a third option. Academics, private practice, and telerad. And it's actually changed even more because private practice doesn't mean private practice, right? It means, are you going to work for a consolidated practice? Are you going to work for, you know, a Kaiser Permanente? That's not a private practice, it's more of an employed model. And so there's so many options now that these grads have to be super savvy. And the biggest change that's happened for them is consolidation, private equity, venture capital, coming into healthcare coming into insurance markets, coming into the pharmacy world, coming into everything. And the academic practice is no, just like UPMC. I told you that it became a huge, big behemoth. All these places are doing the same. I remember when MUSC in South Carolina was literally just an academic medical center locally in Charleston. They are all over South Carolina now, right? And like working for MUSC may mean being remote, may mean being in the community, may be right in the hub of the flagship hospital. So it's changed for these young grads as well. Yeah. It's really interesting, the point about savvy too, just the amount of information online, the ability to keep up with all of the people in your alumni network and all the different places that they've gone. And there's whole blogs dedicated now to how to evaluate salaries yeah. and comp plans. And it, it is a much different environment. So the savviness goes both ways. It's not just that the private equity, you know, people now are, you know, so savvy and they hold all the, the power. Correct. In many ways it's, it's flipping, you know, the other big challenge that we're seeing is burnout and envision you've got how many radiologists? Probably 700. 700 radiologists yeah, to huge. have this concern over. How are you thinking about approaching wellness you know, within the practice? 100%. We are approaching wellness. We have to have 
well radiologists if they're going to be productive and happy in the practice, right? Like that's what you want from a practice. You want to feel like I'm compensated well, the technology is great, but the culture of the group is also supportive and physician-centric. That's how you help avoid burnout. Everybody's going to be burned out to some degree when you have volumes like we do. So what we are doing, first of all, is acknowledging that like this is a real problem. We have to create strategies to, A, as people become more and more remote, to have a feeling that we are a practice. We're not providers. We're not cogs in a wheel. We are a practice and that everybody's role is extremely important. If you feel important in your job, you're going to feel less burned out. Okay. And then we have to accept that emergencies happen, family crises happen, sickness happens. All of these things can't be plugged into some HR formula that like, oh, you missed, you were late for your shift by 10 minutes, 10 demerits. Oh, you made a mistake on this film, 10 demerits, you know? No, we have to go move towards peer learning rather than a punitive QA approach. We have to go towards, hey, uh, we have to have the flexible scheduling options for RADS because you know what? They are going to need to be at the school for a PTA meeting. And if they miss it, their quality of life goes down. And I'm not talking about just teleradiology. I'm not just talking about Envision. I'm talking about all of radiology, right? I have yet to find a practice model that has not an example of a practice that has become draconian or inhuman or inhumane to the very lifeblood of their practice, which is their RADS. On the point of being physician-centric, talked a little bit about technology's ability to reduce workloads. How are you seeing the risk of mid-levels? Um, you because know, Envision, I think you're at a pretty interesting point in the ecosystem where you don't just employ radiologists, but tens of thousands of clinicians, I imagine, also PAs yeah. and, and nurses. And, and you are correct. So, we are, you know, 25,000 plus, and part of that is CRNAs and anesthesia, PAs and NPs in ER. And traditionally, radiology, we haven't been, you know, terribly high users of extenders, right? Except in the IR world, maybe it's going to change. And you talk about burnout. Well, we can actually address and alleviate burnout with help from mid-levels, very smart mid-levels that can help us. But the third rail, the big boogeyman has always been like, well, we don't want them to read our films. And I just don't see how ever that's going to come to fruition because we as radiologists are not going to let that happen. You know, it's just, too risky for a non-board certified radiologist to interpret a film. It just takes so many years of training. It goes back to those hundreds of things that I can assess in a second or two that, you know, AI can't do. So what's to make us think that an extender can do it? However, we have to be unique in our workflows. You know, let's say maybe an extender can help route cases to the right rads until AI gets there. Maybe an extender can give us the right comparison study to make sure that the ultrasound worksheet is attached to make sure that the workflow is good. You know, we have to be very creative. Maybe the radiation dose should be pre-populated by those extenders. And, and, and so the radiologist doesn't have to do mundane tasks. They can focus on making the diagnosis. Maybe they extenders can handle phone calls better than a radiologist can. 
So there's a lot of different things we need to up our game in, in radiology. Yeah. Well, well said. And I can attest to the lengthy training cycle. My wife uh, wouldn't be a radiology report podcast if I didn't mention my wife. She's just about, as we sit six weeks away from finishing fellowship training and when That's we right. were just out of college and she, she had a similar reverse track as you, she started out in engineering and she worked in consulting for a few years and then said, you know, this isn't doing it for me. We thought, oh, well, it won't take that long. And here we are almost <laughs> 40 and ready to, to start our first, you know, big job. So yeah. the amount of knowledge that is amassed cannot be un understated and it's it's yeah. funny because you people just don't get it and i thought the way you explained it of hey i can go through a few hundred pathologies in a second right <laughs> you right. know helps put into perspective for folks um, it does and and, and i hear people in training are like how do i become faster as a radiologist and i'm like you don't understand right now you need to just absorb because yeah. you're learning so much every second right well, no Don't better place to fill the that. brain than modality. So check out our, our great online learning solution. Shameless plug there. Um, nope, this was nope. a lot of fun. Yeah. I really appreciate you, Dr. Shah. You know, the passion that you still have for your career, you know, 20 years in is infectious. You know, maybe last question, How? what advice do you have for those interested in having such a fun and interesting career in radiology? You have to remember what is the point of being a radiologist, right? Like people forget it's not about generating reports. It's about helping patients treat every patient like they're your family member. And I promise you, you will have a rewarding career and you will remember what you're in it for. Say that to your wife. I think you guys are doing great stuff at Modality because we are moving towards a more online world. We have to educate radiologists in unique, different ways because education in radiology, it's not over at fellowship. It's lifelong. And uh, so thank you for all the great work you're doing. Awesome. Well, everybody, that was Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report Podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online. 